Hi, welcome to the Women in Leadership podcast brought to you by Seasons Leadership, where we focus on helping leaders grow and succeed while building a powerful, supportive community. My name is Debbie Collard, and I'll be your host for today's session. It's my pleasure to also introduce my co-host and co-founder of Seasons Leadership, Susan Ireland. If you're new to this podcast, please check out earlier episodes where you can find more information for your own leadership development. You can personally reach out to us by rating and reviewing the podcast on Apple Podcast. We love to receive your comments and feedback. And if there's a special episode that's your favorite, take a screenshot of the episode and tag at Women in Leadership on your Instagram or LinkedIn stories. And we'll be happy to reach out and connect with you. Now it's my pleasure to introduce Lauren Penning, the owner of Penning Communications and our Seasons Leadership Communications and Marketing Leader. Lauren's an experienced communications specialist with a successful history working in the public relations and communications industry. She has strong media and communications professional skills in public affairs, communications planning, speech writing, crisis communications, and editing. And she's very passionate about helping people successfully tell their stories and connect to others, which fits right into what we're doing today. Welcome, Lauren. Thank you, Debbie. Thanks so much for that wonderful introduction. And I'm really excited to be on the podcast for the first time for me today. And especially because I get to introduce our very special guest. When we were talking about the podcast um, just a few weeks ago, you had mentioned, Debbie, that a listener had asked us to have maybe a faith leader, a faith-based leader on the podcast. And since we're primarily a show focused on women, I thought, you know, that's not a very common profession for women in the United States. But instantly, I knew the perfect person to have on, which is my dear childhood friend, Liz Easton. And I will introduce her now. The Reverend Canon Liz Easton is canon to the ordinary in the Episcopal Diocese of Nebraska. And Liz will explain more clearly what canon to the ordinary is. But in my layman's terms, as I understand it, she helps the bishop basically run the Diocese of Nebraska, the Episcopal Church there. She was born and raised in Seattle, Washington, where she earned a BA in creative writing from Western Washington University in 2005. She has a master's of divinity from the Church Divinity School of the Pacific. And Reverend Easton has served the Episcopal Church in Nebraska since her ordination to the priesthood in 2009, which I was honored to attend, by the way, and sits on a number of denominational boards and committees. She is co-host of the podcast Popping Collars, which explores the intersection of religion and popular culture. And in her free time, she enjoys cooking, hiking, and quality time with her friends and family. She also is very well read and will recommend a book anytime for you, even if you don't ask. Before I ask her to chime in here, I did want to say personally, I can remember when Liz told me she was going to become a priest, we were attending college together at Western Washington University. And we were studying down in the underground coffee shop. Liz will remember this. And she told me, she had something important to tell me. And she told me that she had a calling to become a priest. And I think at the time she thought it was going to be a very shocking moment. And in a way it was because it's not a very common profession for people and especially for women. But Also, it just made a lot of sense. She is exactly what we need in religious leadership in our country today. She's compassionate. She's courageous. She has a strong faith and interest in helping others. And her sermons are beautifully written thanks to her writing background. But the most exciting part for me, I think, has been to watch her leadership skills grow. As a contemporary of mine, when I think about somebody who is my role model as a leader, 
I instantly think of Liz because when we started our careers, you know, as a PR professional, as you introduced me, Debbie, I started out, you know, at the very bottom of of the craft, learning the skills that hopefully would help me become a leader later one day. But as a priest, Liz had to step in as a leader on day one and be a leader in the church. And she's faced a lot of um, different scenarios earlier on in her career than most and done it with a lot of courageousness and compassion. So I would like to introduce my dear friend, uh, the Reverend Canon Liz Easton. Oh, thank you, Lauren. And uh, thank you, Debbie and Susan. This is such a treat. And that was such a kind introduction, Lauren. Um, As Lauren said, we go way, way back. In fact, um, we met probably in utero. Our brothers attended preschool together, which is where our parents met. So we were born as best friends and have just stayed uh, best friends ever since. So um, it's such a delight to be here. And we were reflecting earlier that um, our professional lives have never intersected. And I couldn't even probably imagine a scenario where they would. <laughs> so right. this invitation to be on this podcast is so cool. Um, it made all the more special by getting to do this with Lauren. So thanks for having me. We're so glad that you could join us today. And maybe there was some divine providence in getting you two together professionally. Today. Yeah. So Liz, um, Lauren did a fantastic introduction, but we'd like to hear from you personally about who is Liz and what drove you to take on the leadership role that you have? Yeah, thank you. Um, So I grew up in Seattle um, and I grew up in the Episcopal church, attending the Episcopal parish in my neighborhood. And that was a part of our lives as a family growing up, but not... um, not in a super absorbing way. You know, when I got to the age where I was allowed or able to make decisions for myself about what to do on Sunday morning, I often slept in (laughs) and didn't go to church, but the church still played a big role in my life growing up. And women have been ordained as priests in the Episcopal church since the seventies, but it's been, we're still um, sort of on the road to achieving parity between among genders in um, kind of every way. But when I was 10 years old, my neighborhood church called a woman priest for the first time. So it was the first woman priest I had ever encountered. I sort of knew that women priests were out there in the Episcopal church, but I'd never met one. And so during those sort of middle school, preteen, and then into teen years, I had this wonderful example in my congregation of a woman who was thriving and was really cool being a priest. Her name was Patricia. So I remember sort of looking at her, especially on Sunday morning and thinking like, that might be something I would be good at doing. That might be something I'd enjoy, but it was one of many options. Um, And then into high school and then definitely into college, like Lauren said, this sort of sense of um, rightness began to emerge. Like a lot of religious leaders will have this call story that basically involves like a voice from on high. I didn't have that (laughs) at all. And I'm a little, I questioned folks who did. It's great if that is what happened, but it's not true for all of us. For me, it was a lot like finding any other path in life. I saw a place where my gifts intersected with a particular vocation. And the more that I sort of dreamed and thought and prepared for that, the more true and real it felt. 
So I was a parish priest for about five years here in Omaha, Nebraska, which is where I live. I was the assistant priest at a big um, suburban church, which is a great way to begin my ministry. And then in uh, 2014, my bishop took me out to lunch. I had no idea what the agenda was. I didn't know why. Um, I was a little nervous. And he asked me to join his staff as canon to the ordinary, which is sort of like a chief operating officer or chief of staff position. And that was um, an unexpected invitation. It was a career transition that felt a little premature, but it was also really exciting for me to consider taking on this really new leadership role. So I've been doing that. I've been in that position since 2014. Wow. Wonderful. That's a great story. I want to come back. I'm going to ask you a question, but I want to circle back at some point and ask you about the transition from the Puget Sound, Seattle area to Nebraska. Yes. Let's just do that now. Let's do it now. Okay. Yeah. Cause that is to me that, that, cause I'm from Seattle and grew up here. So that is to me like a, a whole different world, which I am not that familiar with. So what happened with that? <laughs> yeah, it's a huge, it's a huge difference uh, culturally. Well, really in every way. So after I graduated from college, I was, you know, discerning. Um, that's the language that we would use. A call to the priesthood um, was sort of getting some pressure to go to seminary right away. And I felt, I felt like I wasn't ready, which I'm super grateful in retrospect that I, kind of respected that resistance. So I found an internship, which was here in Omaha. And it was a year long internship where you lived in um, a house with other young adults. Half the time I worked for a community service organization and half the time I worked for a church. So it was sort of an opportunity to discover, like, am, I know that I feel called to help people and be in relationship with them. Would that be through social services or would it be through the church? So I got to kind of figure that out on the ground. Well, then um, that program concluded. I left. I remember driving away from the house that I lived in, in Omaha with my mentor who had seen me through that whole program, kind of in the rear view mirror and feeling emotional and thinking, gosh, that was a great year. I bet I will never step foot in the state of Nebraska again. I bet, (laughs) I bet I'll never, I would have no reason to ever come back to Nebraska. Well, of course, I couldn't have been more wrong. Um, I graduated from seminary in 2009, right after the big financial collapse, and jobs were just really hard to find. And I was grateful that I had maintained these relationships here in the Diocese of Nebraska. So I was offered a two-year position. I remember telling my parents, who were not super thrilled about me moving to the middle of the country, um, don't worry, it's two years. I'll be back in two years. Like, what's the worst that could happen? And I discovered that I really fell in love with it here and have been here ever since. So, of course, what what Nebraska doesn't have is my family and my closest friendships and my longest friendships. And that's, uh, you know, a loss that I feel all the time. But in many ways, it's been a great place to land. Right. What? Right. Well, and it's a transition, too. I think, you know, for a lot of women going branching out, going to new environments, new companies, um, that transition is not necessarily an easy one. 
No, I was just thinking um, when I moved here, I just moved with a station wagon. In fact, Lauren and I moved out here together. We drove from Seattle to Omaha in my um, Ford Escort station wagon, which was packed to the gills. Um, yeah, we made it. It was a great trip. And that was pretty much all that I had. Um, and and it was a big uh, a big transition. I think that in a career, and lots of careers are like this, but in mine in particular, there was sort of a shift in identity that happened for me um, that had to do with sort of taking on a, a different um, role in the world and in my community, trying on new experiences and challenges, succeeding at some of them, failing at others. And there was a kind of grace in having a fresh start and being able to show up as the person that I was and not everything that I had been up until that moment, professionally, socially, and personally, it was a big loss and it was a hard change to make. But I think professionally, it was probably a good way to start. Right. You didn't have people that already thought they knew who you were. Right. Or pinching my cheek. You know, I was so young. (laughs) And even in the priesthood world, I was pretty young to begin with. Um, And then women clergy tend to be kind of infantilized on top of that. So it was good to kind of show up like as much of a grown up as I could be um, without people who had a real deep history with me. Wow. Well, that kind of leads into my next question then. At Seasons Leadership, we believe that there is a foundational leadership triad a vision, what you want to achieve, mission, why you do what you do, and values, how you go about doing what you do or what you're aligned to. Mission, or said differently, purpose, or your why is the key part of that foundation. What would you say your why is or your mission? That's a great question. And it's, I haven't seen that triad kind of laid out in that way before. So that's a great question to reflect on. Um, I know that you're not a religious podcast or a religious organization, but it is not possible for me to answer this question <laughs> without talking about my faith. Yeah. That's really sort of the, the cornerstone. And for me, m- my main goal professionally and personally is to be a faithful follower of Jesus, to be um, in relationship with God and for my um, my life to align with my values as a Christian. And um, of course, you don't have to be a clergy person to do that. I think that the m- most successful and happy careers are places where your values, whether they're religious values or not, align in a really powerful way with the work that you're doing. But that's that's sort of the intention that I begin every day with and um, and and make decisions with professionally. In the position that I have right now, where I serve sort of as a consultant, to congregations throughout Nebraska, and also, um, as Lauren said, sort of assisting in the leadership of our diocese. That means empowering other people to do the same thing that I'm trying to do myself, trying to empower people to live with integrity as they, you know, explore their faith and, and, and try to be good disciples themselves. And that's a real privilege. I mean, I think all the time, it's sort of a joke, but it's sort of true that I'm such a bad Christian. They have to pay me to do it. Like it's, it's like an astonishing privilege that I get paid you know, to professionally be a Christian. It's kind of crazy. That's so cool. I, we were talking about that 
values as part of the, the triad. And you mentioned, of course, the values that you have um, with faith being the cornerstone. I was wondering if maybe there's not to dwell on the pandemic, but it obviously is a big leadership challenge that people have faced in all professions. But I know you professionally as the leader, you know, one of the, the leaders of the Episcopal Church in Nebraska, how have you have you used those values to help with some of the dis- the leadership challenges you faced during the pandemic during this time? I thought maybe you could share a story or two. Yeah, absolutely. Um, gosh, the pandemic has been so hard for everyone in, in, in so many different ways. And I think that people who are involved in leadership of organizations, whatever that organization is, had a particular pressure that had to do with de- decision-making, especially early on when we didn't entirely understand the disease and um, things were changing every single day. So I still have, um, not to make light of actual trauma, I don't think I actually have PTSD, but there's an aspect of like physical memory of those first few weeks and months of the pandemic that were just really, really difficult and had to do with decision-making. So I think that, you know, so churches and other religious communities, everything that we do that defines who we are were the exact same things that we were being told were dangerous to the point of being fatal. So we gather in groups. We especially gather around the sick and dying. We sing, um, you know, which that's turned out to be a really dangerous thing to do. We touch in my tradition, we uh, drink wine out of the same cup (laughs) that, uh, that other people, you know, it's like everything that we do is exactly what we're being told is super dangerous. So a value that we had right away was um, about honoring um, and supporting and protecting the most vulnerable among us. So we were the first denomination in Nebraska to suspend public gatherings of worship. And um, we sort of came out of the gate hoping that we could be um, a leader in that space and help encourage other churches to do the same. And then when we learned more about the disease and case numbers went down again, and we were able to regather with some precautions in place. So I think the jury's still out about how this time has impacted the church. It was, I think we, we lost some things. We probably lost people um, in terms of membership, people going elsewhere, um, engagement. But I, th- I think we also, you know, tried to have integrity and do what we believe what we say we believe we do. So we'll see. We had also catapulted the Episcopal Church into the future because we didn't do broadcast worship as part. I mean, we just didn't do it. And now, you know, every church is all of a sudden broadcasting services, including like we have a retired priest who lives in a really, really small town. And she would just set up her iPad at her dining room table and, you know, lead a worship service from there that people were able to tune into. And it was so beautiful and like such an offering and a gift. So that sort of brought us a little bit more into the future, I think. You know, there, there are some wonderful things to come out of horrible things. So like the pandemic, the, um, the fact that now people can worship wherever they are because of bringing the church into the into the century and catapulting it forward makes it so accessible to people. And so that is something wonderful that came out of something not so wonderful. 
Um, but along those lines, I'd really like to hear from you, Liz. I'm really curious about what's something that you are very proud of in your um, life and career up to this point? That's a good question. I think like a lot of people, I'm probably not good at um, naming that for myself, but I'll try. A big part of, of the position that I have right now is helping parishes find priests and helping priests find parishes. So it's sort of like a big matchmaking project. And it's a it's a project that takes about 18 months to complete. And it's kind of an all hands on deck type of thing for a congregation. And in order for the match to be made well, it requires a kind of relentless honesty on behalf of the congregation about who they are, what they need who they're not. Um, and it's pretty hard work. So I help facilitate that process and it has become just one of the great joys of my ministry when those connections are made and the match is made well. So if, you know, you fast forward a year and look back over your shoulder and see like, wow, these people really found each other and now they're doing incredible things together because they're so well matched. Um, that feels like a real success. That's wonderful. And how do you celebrate successes like that? You know, I don't do that well. And I am sure I'm not alone. I never have done it well. I think, especially not personally, I can like organize the celebration for other people, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I don't pause and, and celebrate something which um, is not faithful. Like if we're talking about faith, especially the Christian faith, it is just a long parade of feasts and fasts. And you can't, it's not a, it's not a faithful um, way to live if you're only fasting. <laughs> so I don't, um, I'm not always great about celebrating the successes, usually because I'm moving too fast and I don't have the presence to do it. But that's an invitation to me to try to do that better. Absolutely. It is. And, and by the way, we hear that almost all the time from everybody that we talk to that they don't do well with celebrating the successes for themselves. They may bring others together and help them celebrate, but applying it to ourselves is something that I think we can all learn and grow in how to do that. Well, so I'm wondering, Liz, were you prepared when you stepped into this leadership role? Did you feel prepared? Um, in some ways, yes. And in some ways, no. So um, technically, like in terms of the technical parts of the role, I was not super prepared just because I, you know, hadn't had the experience and hadn't had this time of job before. And I'm grateful um, for my boss who invited me to do this job that he was really looking at um, sort of, and he does this when he hires in other capacities too. Like he's looking for um, a set of gifts, not so much a set of skills. And um, so I think that I had some of the gifts that would allow me to do this type of work, but not necessarily the skills. One of the gifts that I have and have have always had and have to this day is I love asking for help. I'm not afraid to ask for help. I, I love it. I love asking for advice. The more voices in my ear, the better. So really for the first years of this ministry and to an extent still now, um, I would just pick up the phone and call colleagues, even if I didn't really know them in other parts of the country and say, hey, I'm encountering this thing for the first time. Can you help 
walk me through it. And people are usually really happy to receive those phone calls I've found. And I know that I am now. So um, I did a lot of asking for help. My boss is a terrific mentor and he really engages that work with a lot of intention. So I never had a sense that um, I couldn't say, I don't know what I'm doing, (laughs) or I couldn't say, Hey, I need to talk through this with someone. So in that, in those senses, I wasn't technically prepared. I think on a more fundamental level though, I sort of was because my previous job had been as an assistant in a big church, which is still sort of the basis of what I do now. Like it's a second chair position and I love leading from the second chair. That's just a place where I feel really comfortable. So prior to taking on this role, I had a lot of experience of amplifying somebody else's vision, uh, sort of giving them counsel when they were kind of in an echo chamber and needed someone, a different perspective, giving counsel without an expectation of outcome, which is a big deal. Like if you give your boss advice or counsel and they don't take it, like you have to be okay, okay with that. So in that sense, I sort of was prepared a part of my job, a way to describe my job now, it's not this cool, but the best metaphor is it's sort of like, if you've watched the West wing, it's like Leo McGarry to like, if the Bishop is Jed Bartlett, I I'm Leo McGarry in that (laughs) I'm not that cool. And it's not that fun of a environment or CJ Craig. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You're CJ Craig. <laughs> That's right. He becomes the, right. Uh, yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I love that analogy. I love the, um, also the, the term about when you're in the second chair and you need to give them advice. And especially when they need to hear a dissenting voice yes, from all the yes right. people that tend to be in those areas. So. That's right. And some people don't welcome that. I know I often get phone calls from people who are considering a position like mine, but in a different place. And one of the things that I always encourage them to explore with the person that's hiring them is whether that person actually wants advice and counsel, whether they can function well with that type of feedback, because chief counselor might be part of your job description if you're in that second chair position. But a lot of folks in leadership don't actually want that kind of feedback. And um, they may actually be happy living in an echo chamber, whether they admit it or not. So it can be a source of real frustration if you can't operate comfortably in that space. I'm wondering about your roadmap. If you have one, a leadership roadmap, if you have one, where are you looking forward to? Yeah, um, that's a good question. I've really never been one for roadmaps, especially long-term. I'm not a long-term planner. And I think to a degree, I don't really believe in long-term planning. I try to do what I'm doing in the moment with real sort of commitment and presence, um, and then just take the next step. I, I think that I'd rather make key decisions based on what's actually before me rather than what I imagine might be um, somewhere in the future. Now, in turn, up until this point, I feel like I'm transitioning in my career right now, maybe, but especially when I was younger, 
I would say yes to every opportunity that was given to me, not out of a sense of obligation, like I have to say yes to be good, but because I really did want to see like what happens when I take on more leadership and try out new things. So that felt important and was maybe part of building at least the next step in the roadmap. But but I also think that you get to a point in your career where you don't have to do that anymore. And I'm so I'm kind of struggling with that now. I don't know if I'm there now. But I think for me, I what I really want is to find joy and meaning in my work. And I think that that's hard to do if you're hustling all the time for the next thing. And I recently heard a story of someone, a friend of a friend who got a big promotion at like a big firm. And he said, I feel like I've won a pie eating contest and my prize is more pie. And I, I think that that is a real hazard in life and in career. And it's one that I want to avoid. So um, I try to be intentional about kind of the next step instead of the big picture. When you talk, Liz, about um, some of the struggles you've had professionally too, we like to talk about resilience a lot at Seasons Leadership and kind of how that plays a role in getting through those more challenging times. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how resilience has played sort of in your leadership journey up to this, up to this place. I think that resilient, I think we have to be careful when we, when we prize or prioritize resiliency as a as a virtue or a characteristic only in this way. I think that sometimes that value can be twisted in order to allow bad behavior or even um, oppressive or abusive behavior to flourish in a workplace under the guise of like professional grit, like, um, oh, you earned your stripes or, oh, you paid your dues. And so I think we have to be cautious about that. I think it happens a lot to women, particularly to women of color. Um, you have to be resilient in the face of oppression. I think that the other side of resiliency, though, which is one that I do identify with, is as resilience as the opposite of fragility, if that makes sense. So I know I've just seen so many leaders, especially young leaders, kind of destroyed by their own weak egos. And I don't mean that judgmentally. Um, I think that it's really common that um, there can be a sense, especially as a young professional, that um, criticism is wounding instead of productive when our own defensiveness or even our own ability to have a bit of a temper will prevent people from giving us feedback, feedback that could be really helpful to us this idea that you have to be smarter than everybody and that if you're not, then you've somehow failed. I think that fragile people are prone to thinking that others are kind of out to get them and they might assume a negative intent, which just causes so much suffering in the workplace for you, for you in particular. So to me, um, being resilient is being able to be wrong being able to apologize, to learn, to be flexible, to hold space for other people's dissent and for challenges. So um, in that way, I think I'm growing in resiliency as a leader. I know that when I was young, I had that fragile ego too. In lots of ways, I still do. But it, it you have to fail at work 
in order to succeed later. If that may, sometimes I meet people who have never failed and I just think, oh my gosh, it's coming for you and you're going to be destroyed emotionally. You know, you've, you've just got to practice falling down and picking yourself back up. That's so powerful. It resonates with me. I just think about when I was my career and the same thing, that fear of criticism or what that would mean for your career. If somebody had different advice, a different idea on something. And I just find that so inspiring how for you, Liz, you were talking about earlier that asking, you're not afraid to ask for advice, that that is sort of a core piece of who you are in your leadership. It's so powerful to sort of turn that into an opportunity and an exercise in resilience instead of taking it as I have failed and now I am clearly not as good as leaders. That's, that's really amazing. It's hard. I mean, I think it, yeah, it's hard. It's hard to do and hard to get there. Yeah. The challenge continues, but right. <laughs> exactly. <good> one. <laughs> well, Liz, I have a question and I'm going to tell you my thoughts about anybody who's a priest. They don't have any personal life. That's what I think. And I know that can't be possible, but I realized when I was thinking about this, that I kind of thought that. And so one of the things that um, I'm wondering is how do you, I know, of course, you have a personal life, but how do you balance your professional commitments and your personal life to be, you know, somewhat balanced or whole? I do, I do think that priests are a lot like teachers. Like when you're a kid and you see your teacher at outside of school and you kind of freak out. Even the other day, I saw my therapist at Walgreens and um, like I hid from her. Like it was very bizarre. <laughs> like I like her a lot. Why did I do that? Um, so I think that happens to priests too. So for me, I think I try to, you know, stay grounded. I lead a pretty simple life by design. I think that, you know, kind of a simple life where I can sink into my values and what I love and what I enjoy without overly complicating things helps me find more joy in work. I try to focus on my relationships, on having good friendships and relationships with my family to sort of nourish me and feed me. I'm devoted to a daily prayer practice, which helps me begin each day with a lot of kind of spacious silence. And also, oh, and also I'm, as I just sort of mentioned earlier, um, I'm a huge believer in um, like long-term and kind of meandering therapy. Um, I know not everyone's into it. Um, it, it, it's a privilege and everyone has the resources to do it. But for me as a professional too, having an outside objective person to just sort of keep track of what you're working on all the time has been a huge gift. So I also think I, I have friends, like I have friends and colleagues who can't rest, like they just can't. And, um, that's never been my problem. I'm, I'm very good at relaxing, resting, being lazy. I take, uh, you know, we clergy work on Sundays, obviously, and we work most Saturdays too. So Monday is my day off. As you all discovered, you emailed me on Monday and it just like went into the void. I don't even open my computer on Monday. So I preserve that whole 24 hour period as like a Sabbath time. And that's been really helpful in finding balance. That's wonderful. And I'm impressed that you stick to it. 
that's a really helpful thing. It's one thing to make intentions. It's like, okay, I'm going to keep Mondays for myself, but it's another thing to actually follow through and do that. And that's, that's wonderful. What types of, when you have goals, you already talked about the long-term meandering therapy, which I think is wonderful, but what other types of support do you need to be successful in what you do? Oh, I, I mentioned earlier, I think that I have, I have a great boss now who's a great mentor and really my whole career has been defined by really good mentors and bosses and colleagues. So professionally, that's huge. Um, I really need that. I'm a person who, who tends to not know what I think until I say it out loud. So I need people around me. So I'm not just talking to myself. So sort of mutually vulnerable professional relationships are really important to me. Um, I have a couple of colleague groups with people who do similar work in different places. So we're able to really be there for each other without bringing a lot of context um, to the situation, which has been really helpful. And then I have really solid friendships. Lauren is a prime example. I, you know, I'm not married. I don't have children. And um, so my friendships are really important um, sort of family of choice for me that I try to invest a lot in those relationships. And I know that I get a lot from them too. Way to go, Lauren. Way to be that support. <laughs> Absolutely. That's right. Yeah. You'll, you, we were talking earlier about how you celebrate successes. You'll have to come out here to Seattle visit and we'll celebrate. Yeah. With your goddaughter, my daughter, Vivian. Yes. Well, and we have plans for a big um, whitewater rafting trip in the Rockies sometime. Yes. So we'll have to make that happen. We're going to look for pictures. We want to see it on social media. Yeah. Oh, it will be. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Liz is quite, um, I just, and I don't know where this, this question would go exactly, but it popped into my head the other day, Liz. I was thinking about the wandering Clarkson. (laughs) Whatever happened to him? And if you want to, I'll show. He's over here. I'll share with that uh, with our listeners a little bit about um, Wandering Clarkson and his journey. Who is? Yeah, this is. Um, so for our listeners, this is like a little peg doll that's painted to look like a classic bishop, and um, he's meant to represent the first bishop of the of Nebraska, um, Robert Harper Clarkson. And so we use, he sort of disappeared, but when I started my ministry, a big part of what I do is I travel the state of Nebraska and visit churches all the time. So I'm on sort of this constant road trip that mainly is just weekends, but it looks like I'm on the road all week long. I'm really not. But when I first began this job, I knew that social media was a powerful way to bring our state together. We're geographically huge in Nebraska and really culturally socially, politically diverse, like a lot of big states, all of our like political and sort of universities, like everything is in the East. So the West tends to feel a little left out of things. So I would take pictures of wandering Clarkson and like write a little narrative of where he was from his perspective. I realize now that when I was starting this job, he was just a proxy for me. I wasn't that comfortable putting myself out there. I've grown in comfort with that, but um, he was a great companion. There's actually two of them. I have one and the bishop has one. So that way it sometimes looks like Wandering Clarkson is in two places at once, (laughs) but you can find him out there. It is fun. Yeah, it was fun. Then I think you and the the bishop started doing like Facebook lives. Was that one? Yeah. Yeah. From your travels as a way to 
people from there. Yeah, we would put the phone just on the dashboard of his pickup truck and turn it on while we were driving back from some, you know, a small church in somewhere in Nebraska. And we would just tell the story of what life was like there and what we ate at the potluck and what um, the trip was like. And that was before the pandemic. We haven't done it since because I think people are so burned out on Facebook Live and we've only just started traveling again. But it was a really fun kind of dash cam, sort of like carpool karaoke, but without singing. (laughs) (laughs) Way to bring everybody into your leadership journey and share what's happening in the diocese. That's awesome. Okay, I get the honor of asking the last question. So I'm curious to know your answer here, Liz, because we haven't talked about this before. But if you could be any cartoon character, who would it be and why? That is a good question that I had a heads up on and I could not answer it. So I found like a Buzzfeed quiz that was like, what cartoon character are you? And I thought this is perfect. I'll look so smart. And I went through all of the questions and they gave me um, Daria Morgendorfer from that uh, MTV show, Daria from probably the late nineties, early two thousands. And I don't think I'm quite as cynical as she is. Or as, actually, I don't know that I'm like her at all, except for I do know that I liked the show. I think I have a little Lisa Simpson in me too. Like I'm a little bit of a justice warrior and I want to do what's right. And I read a lot. So probably a combination of Lisa Simpson and Daria Morgendorfer. (laughs) Go Right. Oh, and I'm going to ask another question. I'm sorry, Susan and Debbie, but it's okay. You're um, entitled. Beginning, because we mentioned in the beginning that you will recommend a book, even if not asked, what are you reading right now, Liz? And would you recommend it? Um, gosh, let's see. I just finished, so I read a lot of fiction for fun. So I just finished a great book. Allow me a moment to look up my Instagram. That's sort of a thriller called Fierce Little Thing, which was, it's a, it's a thriller that also is, reads like literary fiction. So it's really beautiful, kind of a coming of age thing. That was very good. My favorite book of the year so far is actually based in the Pacific Northwest, and it's called Legends of the North Cascades by Jonathan Evison. And it's a novel. I don't even know how I found it. It just came out um, maybe in the summer. And it's a really great story that's set in um, the Pacific Northwest that brings up a lot of themes about like isolation and self-sufficiency versus connection and relationships. It's really good. So I'd recommend that. I could go on and on. <laughs> we can check your Instagram for more uh, recommendations. Yeah. That's right. My Instagram is a depository, a, depo- a repository, I guess. Repository of, uh, of books, more than books and small Nebraska churches is what you'll find there. All right. Well, thank you, Liz, Reverend Easton, for taking the time to share your personal stories and inspirational ideas with us today. And I have to say what you have reminded me of is the importance of having a spiritual life and really nurturing that to, uh, to be a whole person. It's just so important and you really did inspire me. Thank you. Um, And a special thank you to, to the people who make this podcast happen. We couldn't do it without you. 
Marianne Metz, the Meteor and Brand Manager for Women in Leadership, and Lauren Penning. Thank you for joining us today, Lauren, our Communications and Marketing Leader for Seasons Leadership. And of course, Eric Wilson, our producer for the Women in Leadership podcast, who does magical things. Thank you to us all. Please tune in on Women Wednesdays for upcoming episodes where we'll be interviewing more leaders just like Liz. We will see you next time. Have a great day.